First and Second Thessalonians, verse by verse. Hasn't it been a most amazing stay? Hasn't it been just a most practical, amen, just needful couple of, uh, well, I don't know how long we've been here, several months in these two letters, but so needful, brethren, for the church, for you and I, certainly um, today. And so this morning, as we wade down into, if you will, the Apostle Paul's closing commands, and again, this is kind of going to be our theme again this morning, as he has kept that theme through the book, to the brethren at Thessalonica, I thought it would be good for just a moment. Amen. To call to our memories a holy summation regarding our stay here in First and Second Thessalonians. These two letters that flowed from the Apostle Paul's inspired pen were written to a congregation, as we know, brethren, that now this is the positive side of it, that they were experiencing some obvious and substantial spiritual growth. Well, at the same time, as we have seen and heard and learned in here, that Paul prayed for them. We remember this. That Paul prayed for them and commends them for their work of faith, for their labor of love and their patience of hope. He writes to encourage them, amen, as we often today need that, as they suffer beneath the weight of persecution from the enemies of God on the outside. And careful, brethren, I'm in. Again, and from the pressure of some on the inside. And this, again, as Paul warned, remember when he was leaving the Ephesian elders, he says, uh, be careful, there'll be men that'll come up from amongst you, even as they come from the outside. And so, again, we see this, this attack on the church there, one of the very first local churches that God had put together. He writes to address their confusion. Again, we saw that, amen, concerning the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. And this morning, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. Why? Because we are proclaiming his death till he comes. Again, they were waiting for him to come, and they were greatly concerned about where their brethren were at, those who had died in the Lord, and then where they're at in relation to his second coming. And so he writes to them to clear some of that up. And we remember, don't we, that every chapter, eight chapters, first in, in verses in, chap, in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, eight chapters full of good, practical, doctrinal use for the church in the shadow of his coming. So this really is one of the main themes that we have seen there. And these things are essential. One of the things I've learned myself, even, you know, as you grow as a Christian, amen, and you read the word of God as we talk about all the time, you grow in the grace and knowledge of him, amen, and you, you grow, you read scripture, and it points things out to you, things that you need to grow in, things that you need to ask the Spirit of God to remove from you, those things that are unholy and not so good in your life, amen, and so that's one of the practical things that we have certainly seen here in this letter. Paul, when we were together here last time, a couple of weeks ago, Paul again encouraged the brethren. He wrote to them to say that the Lord will establish them. He will make them stand in a firm place, amen, and that he will keep them. Again, he will guard them both from within and without. And so, again, Paul is encouraging and writing to the brethren as he's there. The Holy Ghost, we've seen his work here. I pray as we've read the word that the Holy Ghost has been working in your heart and in your mind as we've seen so many practical things from this letter. And as we take it up this morning, 
Paul, again, has to confirm. <laughs> he uses some terminology here that's very militaristic in, in, in language. And I want you to see this together. Look at verse number 6 as we begin our text this morning. Look there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at verse number 6. Now we command you, brethren... Amen? And again, as we consider our text, as Paul begins here in verse number 6, he begins with a command. And literally, we've seen this, and we're going to look at this. This command, brethren, is not a suggestion. Amen? So in other words, Paul's not writing as he closes this letter to the brethren to say, hey, I got a couple of suggestions for you. It's kind of like Ted Copper. You remember, well, you young people don't remember who he was. He was on Nightline all the time, amen? I remember he went to a college several years, 20, maybe 25 years ago, and he stood up before this, this liberal college, and he, 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 he says, here are God's Ten Commandments. They're not his suggestions. You see what happens when we think they're just suggestions. Look around and see what's happening. Just take a look. When you think they're suggestions, you can, well, I can obey it or not. Here, these are militaristic commands that Paul is giving. In fact, not only does he give a command, look at the authority by which he gives this command. Look what it says there in verse number 6 again. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, Paul here isn't just using his authority. He's calling on the Lord Jesus Christ as his authority. Therefore, these are not, again, can I say it? This is not a suggestion. This is absolutely by the authority of the master himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse number four. Again, as we see this, this terminology that he's used, look at verse number four. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we, what? command you. He likes that word. Many people today do not like that word. They don't like authority. You're not going to have any authority over me as a pastor, as a church, as an elder, or anything. I'm free. Howard brought it up this morning in Bible study. If you lived under a tyrant, which much of the world does, you would much understand and better understand what Paul's talking about because he was living under a tyrant when he wrote this letter. People understood that the king he who was in authority had all authority, and when he commanded you, you obeyed it. And this is what we see here again. Christians like to pick and choose. I like that. I don't like that. I think I'll try that. I think maybe I'll do this. No, brethren. Amen? This is a command. In fact, look at verse number 10. <laughs> he likes this word, and we should like it too. Because all of these commands, when he commands us by the authority of Christ, it's always for our good. You understand this. Paul's not going to command us to do something that's unholy, ungodly, or not for our good. It's always for our spiritual and our physical well-being. Look at verse number 10 there. The Bible says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither shall they eat. Look at verse number 12. Again, he uses the terminology all through our text. Look at verse number 12. Now then, uh, now then that are such, we command you, exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ. There again, with quietness they work and eat with their own bread. Again, he's not saying it's my authority, but it is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ's authority. This is where these commands are coming from. And you remember that Paul addressed this issue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want us to go there again because he uses the same terminology. Again, this is something that we've studied, we've looked at, but it's good for us to be reminded, again, how important what Paul is saying by the authority of Christ, how good it is for us spiritually 
and especially spiritually. Look at chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. Look at verse number 11. And there is a difference, and we're going to see this here. In chapter 4, look there at verse number 11. He says, And that ye study to be quiet and do your own business and to work with your own hands. We, what? Commanded you that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that they may have lack, that ye may have lack of nothing. Paul is giving a command. Now again, brethren, we get accused of a lot of things. One of the things the Bible teaches is biblical separation. Do you understand? This is, again, brethren, this is not just Paul's thought. This is indeed by the authority of Christ. There is a good biblical separation that we are to have. Clearly. And it's amazing here. Who is he telling them to to withdraw. He tells the brethren to withdraw themselves from every disorderly brother. Listen, who continues to live in mutiny against the edicts of God that Paul has laid out here in First and Second Thessalonians. He says, we are to separate from them. Now, it's interesting here if you look. We're talking about working. Remember, Paul addressed it in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now he does it here again about those who would not work. Because again, that theme, the Lord Jesus is coming. What did that cause? It caused some brethren to stop working. So they're just laying around. In fact, he extends that. You realize, brother, one sin begets another. And generally, one sin will lead to something bigger. That's generally what happens. It doesn't degress, it progresses. And you look there at verse 11. Look at the seriousness of the sin that has begot some of the brethren because they're not working. They're idle. We know what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 16, don't we? We remember that. See, people think of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they go, oh, yeah, God destroyed it because they were, there was a bunch of Sodomites. Well, that's true, but that's not where it started. If you look there, it started with what? Fullness of bread and idleness. Hey, what's that old saying we always have? It's not in the Bible, but you can clearly glean it from exegetical uh, understanding of Scripture. What is it, right? The devil loves idleness, idle hands, because this is what it produces. Now look there at verse number 11. Look there if you would. This is where it goes. Verse number 11 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Get back there. Look at verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are what? Busybodies. Now, brethren, This is a most dangerous thing for a church. It's a most dangerous thing for a brother or sister to get into this kind of thing. Being a busy body. We have, and I have, as a pastor over the years, experienced this on several occasions. And it is a dangerous thing, brother. Because normally what happens, well, this word, let me define busybody, literally doing nothing but doing around. One who meddles in the affairs of others under the ruse of helping. You ever been in a prayer meeting? (laughs) Oh, oh, brothers. You ever been in a prayer meeting? Somebody will say, hey, not to gossip. I just want to pray for so-and-so. And then they give you all the details. That's what they wanted to do. Amen? What do we always say? Where there's no tail here, there can be no tail bearer. That's biblical. That's what the Bible says. But this is what happens. They're busy bodies in everybody else's affairs. In fact, if you look, and we don't have time to go there, but let me give you the verse. First Peter chapter 4, verse number 15. You go look there. 
And you look what he says. He says, blessed are you if you're persecuted, not for being what? A murderer or a busy body, but rather a believer. So in other words, what Peter's doing, he's tying in being a busybody right with murder and thievery. They're just as serious as those sins. And brethren, we've seen it in our own fellowship here, how serious that is and how bad it is for the church. That's why Paul here is warning them. You, you schlubs, they're still brethren. You schlubs who stopped working, get back to work. Stop being idle because now you're a busybody. You're in everybody else's business and affairs. Man, there's something I just can't stand that when somebody... You know, I grew up in kind of a small town. Some of us probably have. And let me tell you about a small town. Everybody knows more about your business than you do. And you know what they do? It's Gossip City. It's just, this sinning is unbelievable. It's such a sad state of affairs. But this is what Paul's warning the brethren. Hey, withdraw yourself from that. This is what you must do. Now that word withdraw literally means, brethren, to furl the sail. To quit keeping company with, uh, with one. To move oneself away. And brethren, this morning, our religious affections here are drawn uh, to who Paul is calling to action. Again, this is the difference. These are the subtle differences in the text. Here, he's addressing those who are not idle. Amen? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he addressed them, he's addressing those who are idle. He's speaking to them and he's telling them, hey, I'm warning you. Stop, don't, you know, stop not working. Stop being a busybody. But then, brethren, listen, when something in the church is ignored, when the Bible, when, when a biblical principle is ignored by the brethren, when you tell them this is what God says and then they ignore it, longer and more severe steps are needed. And this is exactly what Paul is doing. In 1 Thessalonians, he talked to the people who were doing it. Here he's talking to the brethren saying, withdraw yourself from them. If they're not going to follow the word of God, if they're not going to be obedient to the edict of God, then those of you who are being obedient must withdraw yourself from them. You must set your sail. You must put them out. Because, brethren, as I say, and I've said a million times, <laughs> Howard, I'm going to be tired of my illustration. When you put on a white glove, right, Howard? When you put on a white glove, brethren, and you put it in the mud, what happens? The glove always gets muddy. The mud never gets glovey. Never. Yeah. Never. And so that which is unholy and the disobedience that's taking place as they're rejecting God's edicts is going to start wearing off on everybody else. And that's exactly how it goes. Let me say this 100% of the time. It goes that way. You know how I know that? Because I look at Israel. I look at the life of Israel. Look what God told them. Hey, when you go into a land, hey, clear it out. Get rid of everything. Get rid of Moloch. Get rid of all these things. Kill, you know, God was clear, clearing it out. In fact, he used bees, remember? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I believe that, do you? I believe God used bees to not too quickly, not too slowly. So the wild beasts would come in. He just moved them on out of there, and Israel came right on in there. And what didn't they do? They didn't clean house as God told them to. And what happened 100% of the time? Do you think Israel influenced them? No, brethren. They were always influenced by the, the wickedness around them, and they became just like them. They went from followers of God to men and women 
who would openly and freely offer up their children as sacrifice to Moloch. Crazy. That's what Paul is saying here. He's telling them, you need to, you need to withdraw from that brother. It's an amazing thing. Now, when you think about this for a moment, and again, this is what happens. When these admonitions and warnings are ignored, stronger steps are called for. And this is a biblical thing. So Paul commands here the brethren, the orderly brethren, to furl their sails, to quit keeping company with the disorderly brothers. Why? Because that's God's ordained means to bring forth God's ordained ends. And again, brethren, as we consider this, again, we're Americans. We, We can't even begin to get a hold of what's going on here and how the church really functioned back then. It's a stunning thing. He wants to bring about God's ordained ends in the lives of his disobedient sheep. Look at verses 14 and 15. God's ordained means is for the orderly brothers to withdraw themselves. His ends is this. Look at verse number 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have what? No company with him. That's the idea. That's the withdrawing. That's what that word means. Have no company with those who are disorderly, those who are rejecting the edicts of God. Amen? And uh, that he may what? Listen, he finishes the verse. Again, God's ordained means for the ends, that they may feel what? Ashamed. You, You realize what this means. And again, brethren, as we consider this, it's a stunning thing. Look what was going on in the church in Corinth. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there with me if you would. See, this is the funny thing. You know, you ask people, what kind of church would you like to be like? Mike, how how would you like, and the elders of your church, what church would you like to mimic? Well, I'd like to mimic 1 Thessalonians, the church of 1 Thessalonians, because as the church grew along, things like this started to happen. And we've dealt with some of this stuff. But again, brethren, there's a means that God has to bring forth the ends. And this is why when we deviate from his means, the ends are disastrous. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now listen, brethren, carefully. Look at verse number 1. Now listen. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up. Not only is there just an obscene sinfulness taking place within the body, but you're proud of it. How many times does the Bible speak well of pride? Can I, can I tell you? Zero. Not once. Never. They're proud of what's happening within the church. Now, brethren, I'm telling you, this is crazy. Now, look at this here. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you, that he might be withdrawn from you, so that you're not encapsulated and ensnared in this sort of thing. Because we always say to ourselves, don't we? That'll never happen to me. You don't know that. Again, brethren, over the last year, I've told you before, I've had four dear godly men in my life, four of them, that have fallen morally, ethically, and you'd never dream it. You would never dream. You'd never look at the brother and go, yep, that brother's going to fall. And they did, stunningly, in a year, brethren. 
So don't say it can't happen to me because you don't know that. You don't know your temptations. Look there what he says. For I verily as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name, again, the authority of who? Not Paul, but Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto who? Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Again, when this is taking place, there must be a withdrawing. There must be a setting of the sail. That person must indeed be separated out. And you say, well, that's mean. No, that's God's means of keeping the church pure so that you don't fall into it. But here's the beauty, brethren. Again, I grew up in the IFB a lot of years. And you know what the IFB does, Independent Fundamental Baptist, if you don't know what that is? When one of theirs falls, what's the first thing normally they do? They shoot them when they're down. That's not the intention of God's ends. The means here sounds mean, but it's God's way of fixing and, and fixing it properly and rightly to bring forth this end. Look at 2 Corinthians, if you would. This man here is put out because of the sin. And suddenly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he appears again. And I want you to see the work. The means that was employed brought forth the work that we see here in 2 Corinthians. See, Paul's idea was not to be mean. Paul's idea was not to shoot the man when he was down and kick him when he's down and disown him and act like they don't know who he is. But rather, this is the ends. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is the same man in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he's put out. I want you to see God's glorious ends. Look at verse number 5. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. That means to be too severe with you. Look at verse 6. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So in other words, what happened is the man was, by, by, the, by the, the sanction of the church, was put out. That's where he was, that's what happened to him. The many, that's the church. Verse number seven. So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with, in, with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. To, and for to this end also, there's the end, brethren. This is what we're looking for. When we do things God's way, which seems harsh sometimes to us as men, but when we do it God's way, his glorious end is brought forth. Again, what does Galatians 6.1 say? When a brother is found in a fault, you who are spiritual, listen, in the spirit of meekness, considering your own self should restore him. The spirit of meekness, not in the spirit of meanness. The spirit of meekness, because again, when you consider your own self, you don't know what, when no one's watching, when no one's looking, what might and could happen. We pray it doesn't. But this is the spirit which this man now is being brought back forth into the church. Look at here. Look at what. Wherefore, I beseech you, verse 8, that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, and that I might know the proof of you, 
whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive uh, anything to whom it is I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Look at verse 11. Lest Satan, again, Satan's mentioned in both passages. Satan, when he's, Paul's talking about turning him over to Satan, he's talking about putting him out in the world. Lest Satan should get an advantage on us. Do you see that there? It goes from the man and Satan and being placed out in the world. Paul's now concerned about the brethren. You know what he's concerned about? Again, that they're going to be, become hard towards him. Look at what it says. Lest Satan should get an advantage on us. The way that we act towards our brother. So he's worried about the, the, the ramifications of it being too long. If the brother repents... You allow them back in. And this is the key. When the brother repents, that's when again the church, God's ends, is brought forth. Look what it says. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Again, brethren, this is the key. The key here is this withdrawing, this setting of the sail of those who are disorderly. And I'm talking about, and we're talking here again, being a busybody which is lined up with a murderer and a thief. It's a very devastating thing. And so, you see here, brother, in this whole thing, that's God's ordained ends. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Again, this is a biblical thing. When it's done with the biblical spirit. If you go look at our constitution, our constitution and bylaws, you'll see we have in there three reasons why church discipline is important. Go look, section 8. You'll see it. It's not to be mean. It's not to punish to, to a degree but rather it is to keep purity in the church. Second of all, it is to what? To, to, to show the church that you're being biblical. And thirdly is that this discipline may cause the brother. And again, this is what's missing, brother. And again, this is missing. Cause the brother to yearn for the safety of the fellowship. Cause the brother to go, I'm missing out. I'm outside now. I want to be inside the church. I want to be in with the brethren. I want to be safe and, and secure with the other sheep inside the fold. Instead, we kick. <laughs> we, we kick them out. It's an amazing thing. Look there, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at Paul here, what he says in verse 18. This charge I command, or I commit unto thee, Son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some have, having put away concerning faith, have made a shipwreck. Of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered unto Satan. Why? That they're in the church, that they might learn not to what? To blaspheme. Again, God's means. Paul gave them up in order that they might come to the ends, which is that they don't blaspheme anymore. Again, brethren, this is God's way. This is his perfect uh, antidote. Unfortunately for us, as we consider this, the purpose, again, let me say, of withdrawing from disobedient brethren is to put them out of the church into the domain of Satan, the world, causing them, and we would hope that the Spirit of God working in them would cause them to miss the fellowship of the church and want to come back in and repent of their disobedience. Again, that's the whole purpose, the sole purpose of it. However, <laughs> let me just modernize this for you. 
However, brethren, in our consumer-driven church shopping culture, it's stunning. Now, let me say, there are reasons you leave a church. I've left a church before. But that's after they deviated from the things of God, the fundamental things, the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to incorporate business principles into the church to make it grow. Never. I left here. I was associate pastor here because of that. Because the senior pastor wants to incorporate business principles. Well, the business principles are the one, two, threes, and four, fives, and six money thing that we take care of. When it comes to the growing of the church, that's God's business. And you simply stick to preaching the word and asking the spirit to apply the word. And you just be faithful to that, right? Amen? We're Baptists. We can say amen. Well, we're Christians. Let me say that. We're Christians. We can say amen. It's a stunning thing. However, this truth of God, along with many others, are totally and completely ignored today. Totally and completely. People today leave good Bible-believing churches and wander down the street into the open waiting arms of the wolves for a number of unholy and unbiblical reasons. Let me give you a couple that people who have left our church. These are actual reasons why they left. Number one, the bulletin isn't out. You don't have the bulletin out. I'm not kidding you. If all we have to offer is the word of God, I'm leaving. They left. I don't know what else to offer you. I have nothing as a pastor to offer you apart from the word of God and friendship fellowship. The four graces in Acts chapter 2. <laughs> that one young man, what do we have to offer that family that came? Well, I gave him what I have to offer. What else do I have? Well, if the services go too long, I'm leaving, and they left. If the preaching is too long, I'm leaving, and they left. Stunning. Brother Mark sent me a nice meme. It was yesterday when I was talking to Wendy about this very thing. He says, there's a fine line between a long sermon and holding people hostage. <laughs> <laughs> There is. If the prayers of the elders are too long, somebody left our church because me and Howard and Dean pray too long. If the Lord's Supper is practiced every week, which we do every week, I'm leaving and they left. If you use big biblical words, instead of dumbing, hey, this man wanted me to dumb it down. I'm not dumbing it down. I'm raising it up. So hopefully, Lord willing, the Spirit of God will raise you up too. Amen. What, do we like the world? Educate, we're going to dumb it down so dummies can understand it. Wait, you need the Spirit of God working in you so that he'll raise you up and you'll grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, not dumb you down into the sewer. Really. Think of this for a moment, brothers. On and on it goes. On and on it goes. On and on it goes. It's a stunning thing. Let me say this. Wendy, actually, I stole this from her. Because when we were talking, it made so much sense to me. Brethren, it's in the trenches of hard biblical obedience and work where godly, close relationships are formed. See, it's not the easy stuff. It's when you're down in the trenches 
and it's hard and you're working together and you're being obedient to God, that's when relationships are, are drawn and worked and produced. Let me say this. And those of us who are married and have been married, those of us who have had good friends, close friends know that a godly relationship will never, ever last when the first order of your business is what's in it for me. Are my felt needs being met? Sometimes we come and that needs to happen. But that's not the general rule of the Christian. It's the hard work. It's the hard work, brethren. These kinds of relationships that we see nowadays are what I would call fleeting relationships. Brethren, <laughs> if I treated my wife like that, I'll stay with you till I get a better deal. I'll, I'll stay with you as long as all is well and calm and peace. It never happens in the church. It never has. It never will. The devil is always after the church from within and out. You're always on guard. <laughs> I told the elders, I feel like a, you know, if you watch wildlife, which I like to watch lions and stuff like that, you know who's always on guard? Those who are being preyed upon. <laughs> we got rabbits in our yard. They come out from under the tree, and all they do is look. They're trying to figure out who's going to eat them first. That's what Satan does to the church. We're always on guard because he's always preying upon us. It doesn't end. It starts and stops, but it doesn't end. It is a stunning thing. And when you, what's in it for me and my felt needs being met, that freeing relationship, Gina and Vicky, you guys know in your relationship, it would never last. Why in the world do we think in the church that that kind of relationship is going to last? It's not going to. Because all they got to do is get in the car and drive out of the parking lot and go down to the next wolf that's waiting for them. Church shopping. And again, there are particular reasons for leaving a church, but having not the bulletin out and having sermons too long and those sorts of things are not reasons at all. Since when is it your day anyway? I think the Bible calls it the Lord's Day. I think so. Now, brethren, let us ask the Spirit of God, as Paul's going to give us an example. Let us do the hard work. How can I, brethren, be a sacrificial giver to my brethren? When you wake up Sunday morning, your thought should not be, I wonder if I'm going to get anything out of it today. And again, sometimes you need that. But you can't live there. You should come in anticipation of the Lord using you to encourage your brethren. What can you do as you're serving him sacrificially to others? This, brethren, seriously, is what's wrong and what's missing. I guarantee you, and I'm not want to speak ill of people, but I guarantee you some got up this morning and said, I'm not going. I'm probably not going to get anything out of it. You know who heard that? Even if they never spoke it. You know who heard it? The Lord God himself. And that's unholy and unbiblical, and that is a sign of a church shopping commercial idea. 
Not what can I get out of it, but rather what can I give? <laughs> Should we quote John Kennedy just for fun? Ask not what you can do for what, what the church can do for you, but what you can do for the church. That's the biblical idea. Bev, I think about you all the time. I quoted it getting out of my car this morning. Her pastor down in Arizona, brothers and sisters would come up and say, well, pastor, you know, you know I'm not going to be there tonight, but I'm going to be there with you in spirit. <laughs> and Bev's pastor would say, I'll tell you what, why don't you tell your spirit to stay home and you come? <laughs> this is where it's come to, brethren. This is what's happening, even within good Bible-believing churches. It's an amazing thing, brethren. How can I give in a sacrificial way of myself to edify the brethren? Now, let me just say this. I'm not trying to be unkind. I want to use this as an example again. What happens? We had a family that was coming here, and I bet I met with him 50 times. You, know his, you don't want to know what his main question was about our church? How we handle gossip. Because he had been hurt by gossip, and I get that. We have too. Gossip is evil. Well, this is how we handle it, biblically, and this is what we do. And if you don't stop, we, 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 well, I became known as a pastor that kicks people out. Out you go. And that was great. Until I had to apply it to him. Tell us three elders had to apply it to him. It was great till that happened. Yep. And you know what happened when we applied it to him? After he wrote a four-page letter and a seven-page letter to the elders, and if I read it to you, which I wanted to, to warn you, you would be aghast at what this man thought in his heart of you and this church and this place and me and all the elders. So you know what he did? He took his ball. Yep. As soon as we're going to say, you're not writing that, you're not talking about people in our church, you're not doing that. Period. The very thing you were concerned about the whole time I met with you before you started coming, here's the thing now you've done, and now I'm going to apply biblical truth. We're going to apply biblical truth to you, and you take your ball and go home. And the reason I wanted to read that letter is because he took some people with him. And if they knew what that man said, if you knew what he said, they wouldn't go anywhere near that man, period. What he thinks of you and thinks of our church and thinks of the elders and thinks of the Lord's Supper and thinks of us. What does he do, though? He siphons off some people with him. And you know what he did? The means which God used, and again, this brother is application to all. It's the pastor, too. And that's the beauty of it, isn't it, brethren? The same weight you use to everyone else is used to you, and that's what you want. You don't want uneven weights. You don't want the pastor getting special treatment. You don't want the pastor's kids getting, people getting away with that. You want equal treatment across scales, across the board, and that's a beautiful thing. It really, really is. So what happened was, when we applied the means to this man, which is the biblical edicts. He left. Therefore, the ends was not produced. And the ends would be repentance. The ends would be, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. i got to repent of that. That was the hope of the church. Instead, you know what happened? He took that trash somewhere else. 
And I know for a fact, because I've talked to a couple of people, and this isn't gossip, I just know what I've been told. He's doing it there now. Mm -hmm. Because God's means brings forth a holy end. And that's what Paul is concerned about here. And that's what we, brethren, should be concerned about. Now, look here, if we would, back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verses 7, 8, 9. We'll read that together. Because you ask yourself, Paul here, he's doing all this preaching. What is he doing? Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Look there, if you would. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. Now, how do they know that? <laughs> you know how they know it? Because Paul's what? He's living it out. They're right in front of him. Paul's telling them, hey, don't be busybodies. Don't be idle work with your hands. So what does Paul do? He's sacrificially setting an example for the church, for the brothers. Listen, for we behave not unruly, ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail. Listen, night and day. Even though the apostle had the power and the authority to be paid for the work that he was doing. Nay, he says, I will set the example and I will work night and day. In other words, the whole time he was there, he worked with his hands so they wouldn't be a burden to the church. And wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power. Again, as an apostle and as a preacher, we know what Scripture says. They are indeed worthy to be paid for their work. But to make ourselves what? An ensample to you. To make ourselves an ensample. What? Unto you who follow, to follow us. Now it's interesting here. We took note a couple weeks ago, didn't we, brethren? You know, you hear the word application a lot. And it's important, amen? How do, how do I apply the word of God? But as we saw there a couple weeks ago, the application is generally in the text. <laughs> I don't need to come up with wild stories to help you apply the word of God most of the time. It's generally right in the text, which, of course, it is here. What's the application? What is Paul saying? The application you desire is found in the text itself. Here the Apostle Paul applies what he's preached to himself, Timothy, and Silas. They were indeed godly, sacrificial examples to the church. Now it's interesting that they worked hard to support their own needs, to set a good example, leading the way for the brethren to follow. You notice that language in two of the verses there? He uses the word follow. And he uses the word ensample. What is that? I'm glad you asked. Follow means to mimic. It means to imitate, to copy, to pattern after. So in other words, what Paul is saying, hey, follow me. Do what I do. Let me show you what a Bible-believing Christian does within the church. Even though I have the right, according to 1 Timothy 5 and Deuteronomy and a couple of other places in Scripture where he, he does indeed have the right to be, to be supported. I've always been a, what would we call me, Wendy? A tent-making pastor for 25 or 30 years. The first church I ever went to, ever preached at, ever, ever started going and becoming a pastor. The Lord called me. I think I got 
every Sunday. I've always worked, always. And I'm not saying that to brag, I'm just saying this is how God has designed it. And we're soon to see that it is a blessing. It's like I tell my customers when I go to work, and I pray you do too. You walk in and some of them can be very negative, very unpositive about this and about that. And I simply look at them and say, what a glorious thing. God has allowed us to get up this morning and go to work. I know some people laying in a hospital bed who are dying from cancer. I'm grateful I'm here to work. Amen? Yes. This, of course, is the example, the follow. He says in sample, that's a die or a stamp that embosses itself upon a mold which, from which we would then draw an exact copy. Paul is saying, follow me as, I, as I'm an example. In fact, look at Philippians chapter 3 real quickly. Uh, incidentally, by the way, Lord willing, starting next year, we're going to be going through the book of Philippians. A, just a glorious, man, I was reading it, studying it already, looking at what a glorious epistle to us. Oh, brothers, look here at Philippians chapter 3. Again, these same words, not one, but two, follow and ensample. Look there at verse 16. Holding forth the word of life. Oops, I'm in chapter 2. I've got to get to chapter 3, verse 14. I press toward the mark for the, high, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, that's mature, be thus minded, and if, any, uh, if anything uh, ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Verse 17, brethren, be what? Followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us as an ensample. So in other words, look at the men and the women who are walking according to the edicts of God, follow that example, mimic them, and then stamp that on your own life as we follow Christ. That's, brethren, so needful. Again, we always say to become more and more fashioned in the image of God. How do we do it? In the image of Christ. That's how we do it. The word of God and living these things out. Now, Paul said this. We did not act in a disorderly manner. Number one, we did not eat anyone's bread without praying for it. Number three, we kept on sacrificially working night and day the whole time we were among you. So I wouldn't be a burden to you. And so that the accusations that I'm doing this to get rich. <laughs> we have a few of those wandering around today, don't we? A few of them TV preachers, golden toilets and everything else, sick, ungodly and holy stuff that will, they will indeed be held for. Now consider this for a moment, brethren. God has chosen, God has chosen for the most part to take care of you and I by working. You, you understand, that's God's choice. God chose to do that. Remember when Adam and Eve fell? What did he tell them? Hey, you're going to go out now and by the sweat of your brow you're going to till the land. That's God's choice. He chose it. Paul's telling the brethren, this is what God chose. This is how God chose. Those, of course, are his means. If anyone will not work, now listen, instead of cannot work, now this again, the, the church fails miserably here because we've turned it all over to the government, which is a very bad, bad thing to do. 
Very bad. We know there are some who cannot work. You know what we do? We're supposed to be taking care of them. However, again, Paul, according to the edict of God, says, if a man will not work, he will not eat. Do you know how evil that sounds? You know how evil that sounds right now? Some good liberal standing there wanting to give your money away and give your food away. They won't give their own, but they'll give everybody else's away. That's evil. No, that's biblical. That's an edict of God. You work when you can work, and you take care of yourself, and you watch over yourself. And then, brethren, if you can't, the church should be stepping up. This is what Paul is saying. He's teaching this to Christians. It's an amazing thing. God's means is work used to provide our needs. That's the end. Now, look at verses 16, 17, and 18 of 2 Thessalonians as we begin to bring this to a close. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 16, 17, and 18. My pages are all stuck together. It must be humid out. Look there at verse 16, 17, and 18. Now the Lord of peace himself, now the Lord of peace himself, let me read that again. Now the Lord of peace himself, that should bring your attention right away. Notice who Paul's calling on, not the minister, not anyone else. He's calling on God himself. The Lord, listen, of peace himself, give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token of every epistle. Remember, there was a false epistle being tossed around, and they were reading it, and he says, nope, you'll know my epistles. You'll know that I wrote, I wrote I, which is the token of every epistle, so I write. Now look at verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, all of these things, all of the things that we have been witness to through these two glorious epistles, all the doctrine, all of these things, brethren, it boils down to this. He says here in his closing salutation, that he calls upon the Lord of peace himself to give them peace. I like what Spurgeon said. It wasn't an angel of the Lord, nor a minister of the Lord who called Paul upon, which, would get, uh, which of course would be a great mercy, but it is the Lord of peace himself to give you his peace, as only he alone in his own person can give to the church. And that's such a glorious thing for us to consider this morning. And then he says, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, which to him and should be to us, it's the beginning and the end of our Christian life. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, their work. It is indeed a most appropriate blessing for this church. Listen, brethren, as they were experiencing much tribulation, much if you will, angst from, again, the outside world. All this persecution was taking place. And at the same time, again, this is the gloriousness of how God works. Well, all that's going on, they were experiencing some amazing spiritual growth. You know what's funny about that? I just popped in my head. i got to get finished. But John MacArthur, I'm sure many of you are familiar with him out in California. You remember when the government there was trying to shut his church down? And they took his parking lot. They were going to do this. They were trying to do all kinds of things to him. And it's an amazing thing happened. I think, brothers and sisters, uh, Ben and, and Tina, that happened to your pastor's church up in Canada. 
the persecution came, you know what happened? It grew like mad. It grew like crazy. Because people saw the examples, the examples of how we as Christians are to be following godly men, follow Christ, but follow them as they follow Christ. This is what happened. I pray for a little bit of that, don't you? I pray for some persecution. Maybe the Lord will separate that out and our church will grow more and more. That's exactly what happened to their church. That's exactly what happened to several other pastors' churches up there. That's what happened to John MacArthur's church. And the government hated every minute of it. We're going we're gonna to shut down all the churches. We're going to stop God's people from gathering together and singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, gathering around the Lord's table, hearing God's word preached. We're going to shut that down, but the killing mills are going to stay open. The porn shops are going. Everything else is going. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing. We're going to be in samples, followers of the men of God, whom God has used to do a great and mighty work. So let me close with this. Kind of as I, as I started if you will, a holy summation. We know the, the way in which Paul wrote his letters. Doctrine always came first. Because if you're going to practice doctrine, it has to be, remember I, we talked about that, it has to be good and holy and, and, and pure doctrine. Doctrine dictates how you should behave. And so let me just close with a holy summation of what we've looked at over the last several weeks. First of all, brethren, again, the application designed by God is in the text. We are to walk in holiness. Let me give you the verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 through 18. We're to walk in holiness. To please God, that's number one. That's verses 1 and 2. And to abstain from sexual immorality, that's verses 3 through 8. Secondly, we're to walk in love. See, again, you want application. This is the application. Paul says we're to walk in love, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Let me break it down for you so you can go look and study it because I still have to go back. I still got to study this. I still got to ask the Lord to apply this to my own heart in some areas. We're to walk in love, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. We are taught by God to love one another, verse 9, and to increase in it more and more, verse 10. Do you see the application? God teaches us to love one another. Yes, and we're to do it more and more. We're to walk in diligence, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12. We are to mind our own business, to work with our own hands, verse 11. To walk properly towards those who are outside the church, that we don't blaspheme and besmirch God's name, verse 12. We're to walk in hope. That's right, brethren. We're not like the world. We, we, we don't walk around having no hope. We are to walk in hope, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We're not to sorrow concerning our loved ones who have died in the Lord, 13 and 14, because we will then be rejoined with them when Christ returns, 15 through 18. We're to walk in the light. That's right, we're to walk in the light. Why? What did Paul tell us about that? Because those who walk in darkness, what? The Lord's going to come upon them as a thief in the night, not us. We don't know exactly when he's coming, but it ain't going to be as a thief because we're going to be watching and waiting. That's the eye of a Christian turning his eyes towards the, well, you know, again, the Old Testament. 
From whence cometh my help? I look up to where? To the mountains. I look high. There's Christ. There's my help. We are not to be like the lost who have no hope. We have hope. We're to walk in the light because we are sons of light and sons of day, verses 5 through 8. In fact, brethren, in that text, God has ordained us to salvation. Amen? That's a glorious thing through the light of Christ, verses 9 through 11. We're to walk in obedience. And again, this is the thing. As we encapsulate all that we've learned and all that we've tried to digest, which is a lot, we're to walk in obedience, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 22. With respect towards those over us, your elders, your leaders in the church, which is long gone. It's a stunning thing. I think we've talked about it a million times. Even when we were growing up as a little kid, when the minister of God came around or the police came around, any kind of authority came around, you had respect for them. Long gone. Long gone. Nope. Too much church shopping going on. Too much consumerism going on. Too much I'm up yours, I'm going down the road going on. That didn't happen here. Nope. They got in the trenches. Again, let me reiterate to you. There are reasons why one leaves the church, but it has to do with doctrine. Otherwise, get in the trenches. We're to walk in obedience, as I said, with concern to one another, 14 and 15, with joy, prayer, and thanksgiving, verses 16, 17, and 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And don't quench the spirit, despise prophecies, nor be gullible, but hold on to that which is good. You see that? Now, brethren, as I tell other brothers who ask me if I've read these other letters, which I have read letters that are outside of Scripture, the Gospel of Thomas, and some of these, of course I've read them. <laughs> but I don't spend a lot of time reading them because just looking at this, these two epistles, you'll spend the rest of your life asking the Spirit to make you obedient just to this, let alone wanting to go out. What do we always say? We live in a, can I say it again and I'm going to close. We live in a consumer-driven church culture. Yep. If I don't like it here, for whatever reason, I'm gone. Nope. Nope. That's not how it works. We got to get in the trenches together, brethren. Again, there are reasons. I've left the church myself twice because of doctrine, because of their horrible doctrine, unbiblical stuff. I've never left one because I couldn't quite get along with another brother. That's on you. That's on us together to work in the trenches together. Amen? This really, as we boil it all down, this is a church, the Thessalonian church, the church in Thessalonica, brethren, really was and is a godly example for you and I to follow and to be an example of. Amen? Let's pray. Fathers, we have come now to the conclusion of Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. We're so thankful that you would be so kind to us and allow us to have been in the classroom of the Holy Ghost and of Christ and of the Father.
to hear such glorious things that we've heard. Father, we, we pray as James wrote, now that we've heard these things, that we won't just simply be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. If we see a brother or sister in need, we need to have compassion and move and be moved by the Spirit to help that brother or sister in whatever it might be. And Father, we again have learned so much, so many practical things. We pray now as we digest these things over the coming days and weeks that the Spirit of God again will drill them deep down inside of us, in our hearts, in our minds. And when a brother or sister calls up and needs help, like happened a few weeks ago, I'm not picking, I'm just saying, a brother called up and needed help, and only two people showed up. That's not how this works. That's not how we're to be. Not even close. Father, help us to be loving towards one another and caring. And the Spirit of God apply it to us. And now, Lord, we pray as we gather around the Lord's table and we proclaim his death till he comes that the world will see and they will know that we do indeed believe every word, every jot, every tittle, every prophecy, everything. That it is indeed true. Do we understand it? All oh, no. A lot of things I don't understand. But I believe it because it's in the preserved holy word of God. May he, the spirit of God, apply it to us. And Father, we, we pray also for those who are lost, who may be amongst us or may at some point hear the word of God that you would indeed, as you must do, that you would draw them onto yourself, that the Spirit of God would regenerate them. And if they're lost sheep, that will happen. He will regenerate their heart and their mind, put that heart of flesh in, as Ezekiel said, that they might be born again, that they might indeed truly bend the knee and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you now and we love you and pray all these things in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.